welcome everyone. You are listening to The Theology Mill from Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle and I work here at Whitfinstock. I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you hear on the podcast, come stop by our website at whipfinstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K.com. So in this interview, which is for our series, The Grind, I got to talk with Dr. Stephen Nemesh, who earned his PhD in theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's currently teaching Latin and Greek at uh, the North Phoenix Preparatory Academy. So in the interview, we discuss uh, life in Pasadena during his PhD days, uh, his discovery of philosophy and theology, and his experience working outside the academy after his PhD. Um, please also note that you can get 40% off uh, Stephen's new book, Theological Authority in the Church, Reconsidering Traditionalism and Hierarchy, um, with the coupon code NEMESH23. So that's N-E-M-E-S-23, and that's in all caps. So you just apply that at checkout, and that'll get you 40% off his new book. So without further ado, let's head over to the interview. Okay, so I am here with Dr. Stephen Neems, who's um, coming from Arizona. So we're actually in this strange time of year. Um, we just discovered where, so generally Arizona is Mountain Standard Time, but because they don't do um, daylight savings like we do here in Oregon, that we are, even though I'm Pacific Coast Time or Pacific Standard Time, we're actually in the same time zone right now. So we're well, same time at least. Um, so I am calling, that was my long prelude to say that I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. He's in Arizona. We're sharing a late night uh, beverage. It's 8 p.m. for both of us. Um, I've just got a herbal tea that's got all this kind of good stuff that helps me um, kind of get sleepy before bed. I promise I won't get sleepy during the interview and I'll slap myself awake if I if the tea starts hitting me too hard. Um, but so that's what that's what I'm sipping on. What are you drinking, Stephen? I've got here some uh, soda water. My brother got us a soda stream for Christmas a couple of years ago because my wife and I were buying packs of Lacroix and you know carbonated water every week in the groceries, and it was getting out of hand. So sure. uh, he bought us one of these things so we'd have our own thing. I do want to make one correction. My last name actually is pronounced Nemesh. Uh, Nemesh, okay. Nemesh, yeah. I, you, I don't know whether you want to start all over. I actually thought I would wait to put you in this awkward position of deciding whether <laughs> to start all over or to keep going. No, I don't <laughs> think we need to start all over. I, that's all right, uh, that's, that's good, on that's me. Good. I should have asked you before we started recording. So Nemesh, okay. That's Nemesh, good. that's no, right. Yeah, you. no worries. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. but this is, this is what I got. I've got some soda water. I like soda water. A friend of mine calls it virgin Coke because it's like drinking a soda, but <laughs> with none of the bad stuff. You know, it's just water sure. and bubbles. So if yeah. you're a if you're a texture guy and you like your drinks to feel a certain way, this soda water I think is a good a good way to go. Yeah, for sure. No, that's brilliant. Honestly, I hadn't even thought about that because that's like all my friends and I drink if we're not having water or some kind of you know, I, well, you know, aside from like alcohol or tea or coffee or whatever. But like no, but none of my friends drink Sprite or Coke or whatever. It's always Lacroix or something. Yeah, um, but that's brilliant to have your own carbonator so that 
it's just more affordable. LaCroix put out this uh, sugar-free with no like sugar alternatives in it version of Coke that is actually really stinking good. Um, really? So I would love to learn how to make that kind of from scratch from home because I would drink that stuff all the time if I could. I do actually like LaCroix. People make jokes about how it, you know, you know, it's like strawberry flavored, but really what that means is that like, you know, they brew it, <laughs> they, they, they drew the water next to like a strawberry patch or something like the flavors are extremely subtle, Yeah. but I actually like right. it. I don't mind it at all. For me, it's all about the the texture and the feel of it. I actually saw someone, I think it was on Reddit who had a soda stream machine, but he also bought one of those massive like canisters with CO2 in them. Um, the kind that you would have, for example, at a fast food restaurant. Like I used to work at a Subway and we had one of those massive canisters in the back um, to provide carbonation for the, you know, to mix with the syrups sure. and the, the yeah, drinks. Yeah. Uh, and he had hooked that up to his soda stream machine because these soda stream canisters that you buy at the store, they probably last you maybe a month or a month and a half. Uh, but he had this massive canister in his, in his house and, you know, nothing will last him like a year, maybe longer. So <laughs> if you're, if you're really serious about it, that's the way you to go to it. Like you don't have to worry about, you know, over carbonating your, your water and running out of uh, carbonation because that you know you've got basically an industrial supply available. Sure. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like I need to up my carbonation game. <laughs> Get on par with him. Okay, yeah, he, let's go he's ahead. He's a, go a ahead. god among mere men, as, our, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. That guy's on another <laughs> level. For sure. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and um, dig into. Uh, just kind of your your theological background, your educational background. And so my first question is, what kind of first interested you in going to grad school? Yeah, that's a good question. I started studying theology and philosophy when I was around 16 years old. Uh, there was um, the older brother of a friend of mine from my church. Uh, he started a Bible study group. And he began, you know, sort of teaching us in the Bible study group things that he had been learning and reading on his own. Uh, basically, this was during like the, you know, the the young, restless, reformed Calvinist, fr you know, frenzy that was happening in the mm -hmm. yeah. uh, mid and uh, mid, you know, 2000s, basically. Um, so, you know, I started learning theology from him then, and I also started studying philosophy around that same time. And... Basically, when I started my undergrad, I did my undergraduate degree at Arizona State University in philosophy. When I started my undergrad, I already knew that I wanted to go into grad school afterward because I wanted to teach and be a professor and, you know, contribute to the academic literature. I, I just sort of had this this awareness that I want to do these things almost from the start. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I graduated my when I graduated with my bachelor's, I knew I wanted to do a master's, so I went and I did a, a, an MDiv at Fuller Theological Seminary here in Arizona, the satellite campus, but I didn't want to do a PhD because I was getting tired of going to school, and I thought, you know what, you know, half of my friends are already getting married and moving out of the house and, and moving on with their lives, and I'm still single and a student. I want to feel like I'm moving forward, so I said, no. I'm not going to do a PhD, uh, but then when I was in the middle of my MDiv, I started working at Grand Canyon University, which is a Christian university here in Phoenix, as a TA. And I was helping some students during class to write a paper. Um, and I remember I was really enjoying helping these kids 
you know, to, to write a paper for their class and tutoring them and helping them. And as I was walking from that class to my next class that I had the TA for, it's, it's just like this moment as I'm, I'm walking, I even remember exactly where I was. I was walking from one corner of campus to the other. And it's just like a light turned on in my head. And I realized I have to do my PhD because mm-hmm. I like doing this too much to do anything else. I like teaching. I like being in the academic environment. I like contributing to, you know, the academic pursuit of human knowledge and so on. So I basically, I, I had a, I knew that I wanted to do this from the start of my undergrad. I had a moment toward the end of my undergrad where I thought maybe I don't want to do this for as long as I've been planning. Uh, but then I came to my senses, I suppose, uh, in the course of my MDiv. Hmm. Got it. Okay. So, so you you studied philosophy during undergrad and then theology in grad school, but you still kind of continued um, your interest in philosophy and, and sort of what you wrote your dissertation on, at least. So what what kind of prompted your interest in the intersection of those two fields? I know you had just said that you sort of discovered philosophy um, while you were still in high school through a, a friend who was kind of introducing you to uh, some philosophy he was reading. So maybe what was some of that literature you were being exposed to and what kind of sparked those interests in those uh, specific disciplines? You know, I've always had an interest in philosophy and theology at the same time. And for me, these are not really separate fields. Um, yeah, sure. I do not think that you can do theology very well without some capacity for philosophy uh, and perhaps vice versa also. So I, I, I've always thought about these two fields together. I've always been sort of doing them both at the same time. Um, and of course, the things that I've been reading change over time. So when I was first getting into this stuff, uh, that friend of mine recommended me uh, a book by Francis Schaeffer called The God Who Is There. The reason why he recommended me that book was because I had started watching uh, foreign films and art house films. I had made a, a New Year's resolution one year to start watching more foreign films. And a lot of these films have philosophical themes and ideas that they are developing and, and exploring in the course of the movie. So he he proposed that I read this book by Francis Schaeffer, The God Who Is Not, uh, The God Who Is There, excuse me, The God Who Is There, um, because he talks about this and he does sort of like an analysis, a philosophical and theological analysis of, you know, famous um, art house films and so on. So that's what got me into it. Uh, basically, I started by reading that book. Uh, simultaneously with that, I was reading stuff in theology. And that was sort of like the kind of things that like a beginner, uh, the first time learning about theology would read from the Calvinist, uh, sort of the popular Calvinist movement of that time. So sure. yeah. R.C. Sproul, John Piper, things like that. Uh, when I was in my undergrad, I studied mostly um, analytic philosophy and ancient Greek philosophy. Um, then I also did a lot of study on my own in New Testament studies, and especially uh, the debates in Pauline studies about the relationship between faith and works, judgment, uh, new perspective on Paul, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got into my MDiv, I began reading um, more... 20th century theologians, uh, Jürgen Moltmann and T.F. Torrance especially, but other figures, some Karl Barth as well. Um, then after I had finished my MDiv and before I began my PhD, I began to study phenomenological philosophy. 
especially Robert Sokolowski was an important intro, uh, important for introducing me to the field, I suppose. I got into Jean-Luc Marion and other figures. Um, these days, my favorite phenomenological philosopher is Michel Henry. I've kind of moved beyond um, Marion in various ways. Uh, and I also have a kind of a, a developing interest in reading more non-Western philosophy, especially Japanese philosophy from the 20th century that sort of interacts with phenomenology. Uh, I'd also like to study up on ancient Indian philosophy. I actually did a minor in religious studies when I was at ASU, and I took two courses or three, two courses in Indian religions and one course on the Tao Te Ching. So I'd like to I'd like to read up more on on Indian philosophy, especially in the uh, Vedanta philosophy. Uh, but those are projects for the future. But this is basically, yeah. you know, I've I've kind of read a little bit of everything, I suppose. But phenomenology sure. and and systematic theology are where I've really sort of emphasized. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you found anything? I mean, I'm sure you found uh, things that are fruitful um, as you're studying ja like Japanese philosophy. That's super interesting to me. Are there particular figures that you've kind of um, discovered or, or just particular insights that you found? You know, this is still, I, my research is still in the very early stages. So when I said that I'm interested now in Japanese philosophy, I mean, like as of a few days ago, okay. um, this is just, you know, I don't know how it happens with you sometimes, but with me, like, I just, I just get an intuition that there's someone or someone in particular I should be reading. Yeah, uh, and, sure. and it just sort of turns out that I had the right intuition after all, reading that person was profitable. So lately, I've had this intuition that I should begin to look into Japanese philosophy and especially uh, 20th, uh, 20th century Japanese um, uh, interactions with phenomenology and Western philosophy. Uh, so I want to start reading this uh, one particular guy. I think his name is Nishida. Um, and um, I also have a book, uh, The Oxford Handbook of Japanese Philosophy. Mm. So that book is is very, it, it basically contains articles on all the major figures. There's also a very interesting article on Japanese Christian philosophy, which from what I can tell is a very sort of underdeveloped subdomain of Japanese philosophy for the reason that there are just not very many Christians in uh, Japan. No. Uh, and even Japanese interactions with Christianity have been sort of limited and um, sort of unrefined. So I, uh, there, but there are nevertheless some names in those, um, in those articles that I, I want to pursue further. I actually just recently got a book called The Theology of the Pain of God mm, uh, by yeah. a Japanese author. Um, and I want to begin reading that one also. Um, I think all these things are interesting to me because part of my research, um, especially the the my dissertation and after my dissertation, my research has been on uh, trying to push Christian theology, uh, Protestant theology, especially in different directions. Um, I think, I talk a lot about it in my works about how Protestantism uh, inherits certain presuppositions and preoccupations from the Catholic tradition that preceded it. And by Catholic, I don't mean strictly Roman Catholic. I mean sort of the Episcopal conciliar mainstream of sure. theology, the, yeah. the, you know, the, the tradition of the ecumenical councils and so on. Yeah. Um, I think Protestant theology inherited certain mentalities and preoccupations and presuppositions from that Catholic tradition, which are problematic um, because I, I think that they raise all kinds of philosophical problems and, and introduce all sort of trouble. So my, my sort of my 
grand theological project is about pushing Protestant theology in a sort of a post-Catholic direction. Um, and so one of the reasons why I'm interested in reading about Japanese interactions with Christianity is because, as far as I can tell, they are not as laden by the presuppositions and preoccupations of Catholic tradition as Christians in the West are. So this is a, a an opportunity to see new things and to consider new ways of thinking about things and finding you know possible avenues of developing Christian thought further. Yeah, no, that sounds super interesting. So, so as far as kind of the lowercase c Catholic, um, I guess, inheritance that Protestants have, uh, what are, what are some of the sort of the things that you see as problematic that are inherited and how, how are you kind of pushing back on some of those? Well, I can give you an example, um, from my book, Theological Authority in the Church, which was published with uh, Whip and Sock just recently in the no, Cascade no. imprint. Um, one of the ideas or the tendencies that is inherited in Protestantism from the Catholic tradition is the idea that in theology, we have to have sort of like clear and definite answers to certain questions. Um, and we cannot tolerate a difference of opinion. We cannot, uh, you know, we have to have like some very well-defined uh, dogmatic structure that we're committed to and uh, we we stick to it and all others are wrong. Um, this is a, a Catholic mentality. You can see exactly this mentality in the Catholic tradition's interactions with Gnosticism in the second and third centuries and mm -hmm. figures like Irenaeus, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, you can find it in the debates, the Christological and tr uh, Trinitarian debates of the ecumenical councils in that period. You can find it in the discussions about the Eucharist that took place in France in the 10th century or so, 11th century. Um, so this idea that like for certain dogmatic questions, we have to have clear answers. You have to either agree or disagree. If you agree, you're in, if you disagree, you're out, right? Like they, um, you don't really have theological opinions held with an open hand in the Catholic tradition. You have to be firm and you have to commit to them. Yeah. Um, that's a mentality that Protestants um, inherited. Uh, it was inevitable that they do so because it's just the, the way Christianity was for the longest time. But what happened is that Protestants had that same mentality, and yet at the same time, they did not have the same sources of authority as the Roman Catholic tradition does. Um, they had really just one authority, um, or maybe a couple authorities, scripture, and perhaps like some notion of church tradition up to a certain point in church history. Uh, and working with those sources, they came to different interpretations about what those sources taught, for example, about the Eucharist, or about the mm. nature of the church, or about predestination, etc. Um, so they naturally differed in terms of their theological opinions, but they had also inherited this Catholic mentality that we all have to think the same way, and we all have to have clear and definite answers to certain sorts of theological questions. Right. So no longer having a central authority to which, by which to unite them, no longer having someone who's, you know, who's got the power of excommunication in his hands or somebody who can put you to death for disagreeing. Once those sort of, once that controlling factor was gone, then it was inevitable that Protestantism split up into a number of churches. Um, but the problem was not, I think Protestantism just on its own, the problem was this Catholic mentality that could not tolerate differences of opinion that had 
to, you know, have a really well-defined and tight theological system that had to have an answer to certain sorts of theological questions. Because once you have that mentality, but you no longer have an authority that can kill you or, you know, burn you at the stake for disagreeing, then you will never have people agree. And you are naturally going to have divisions because people are just not properly disposed to deal with differences of opinion at that point. You know, every difference Mm -hmm. of opinion has to become a point of division. And so, you know, this is one way in which I think Protestantism could stand to free itself of certain Catholic baggage. And I don't mean it once more. I don't mean Roman Catholic baggage. I mean Catholic in the sense of this Episcopal conciliar tradition. Um, For example, the way it approaches theological disagreement, um, you know, how well-defined does a Christian theology have to be? Uh, Is Christian theology really... Should it really be so preoccupied with certain sorts of questions about matters of metaphysics, for example? Um, these are some of the questions that I raise in my work, and I have my own proposals about them. But that, that would be an example, right? This mentality about how to deal with differences of opinion about doctrine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. It, yeah, it kind of makes me think of Ephraim Radner, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, he's got a couple of really interesting books on sort of division in the church in the West. and well, yeah, that was that was kind of one of the insights I gleaned from him was that the I think he's he's kind of maybe more speaking to specifically the Roman Catholic um, tradition when he says this, but basically he he kind of says that the greatest strength and the greatest weakness of the Roman Catholic Church is its decisiveness. That this yeah. kind of that yeah this I mean it's it's helpful in some ways because you see like. I mean, you see like sometimes kind of debacles with like Protestant denominations being indecisive and then that causing its own kind of fracture. But then in the Catholic church, the decisiveness can be, um, yeah, can be very problematic, especially for lay people trying to sort of conform themselves to something they're not sure they agree with or whatever. Um, Well, this is one of the, this is one of the principal difficulties of life is that if you're not decisive, life passes you by. (laughs) Um, But if you are decisive, you could be decisive about the wrong thing. So how can you, you know, it's like, how can you be decisive while at the same time being willing to correct your own mistakes or be corrected by others? It's very hard to strike a balance about those sorts of things. You have to sort of, you know, you're pulled in two opposite directions because to be decisive is to be confident, to be confident is to presume on more evidence than perhaps you have in your favor uh the less the more you think about how little evidence you have in your favor the less decisive you can be (laughs) so there you know this is just the way things are for human beings we're stuck sort of being pulled in two different directions having to act and not having a basis for acting having to be open to being corrected and yet at the same time you know without being paralyzed by by uh, our own uncertainty that's just the way things are yeah yeah, no, that's super well said. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, speaking of decisions, which is my not so smooth segue, um, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm interested to hear kind of what your experience was like as you were thinking about and applying for PhD programs. Did you apply to others besides Fuller? Did you only apply to Fuller? But just more in general, kind of what was it like for you as you were considering where to go and going through the process of applying? Well, I can I can tell you, um, Zach. Basically, in my life, I, as far as like major things, major life decisions are concerned, I've always just had a clear sense of what the next thing to do is. 
Um, and until I get that clear sense, I just sort of hang out and wait for <laughs> wait for something to happen. But then I get it, and then I know. So I knew that I had to apply to Fuller to do my PhD there um, after I was finishing up my MDiv. Um, around that time, my uh, doctoral supervisor, Oliver Crisp, he had received a research grant from the John Templeton Foundation uh, for $2 million or something like that. And that research grant would pay for, I think, two PhD students, three postdocs, um, basically like a full ride for three years, blah, blah, blah. So I was very much into it. Actually, the my last semester at Fuller, uh, I took an online systematic theology class, or was it history of theology? I don't remember, with Oliver. Um, and I, you know, because I knew I wanted to study with him. I took an online class with him. Uh, he, I wrote a paper on social Trinitarianism, and I referenced John of Damascus, and he really liked it. Uh, so I knew I wanted to study with him. I applied for that um, uh, for that position. I only applied there. I didn't apply anywhere else. I was certain I was going to get it. I thought all the pieces are in place. Everything is going to happen. And I didn't get in. I wasn't, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I wasn't uh, welcomed in. Uh, but Oliver told me, you know what? Apply next year. You can still apply. I'll still be able to take on a grad student, just not with this Templeton Foundation grant. Um, so... You know, I, I basically took a year off. I taught. I didn't uh, I didn't apply to any other schools, so I didn't get in anywhere. Uh, and then the next year, I applied to Fuller and I think to three or four other PhDs programs. I didn't get into any of those, but I did get into Fuller. So yeah. I, you know, I, I knew that I was going to get into Fuller somehow. I, it, 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 I just had a firm conviction that that was the right place for me to be. Um, but... It, you know, I just had to wait a year and it had to take a little more time than I would have expected. Um, but that's how it happened, basically. I knew I had to study with Oliver. It was the best decision. I mean, if, you know, first of all, studying with Oliver is already uh, a privilege because he's just a wonderful academic and a, a great person to study under. Yeah. Also, it was close to home. It was the best, you know, PhD program that I could go to in theology that was, what, a six-hour drive from my, my home in Phoenix. So all the, there were various factors and it all just sort of made sense to go there. Uh, It didn't happen right away. Like I was expecting it happened only a year later, but that's fine by me. I I don't even think about that these days. Sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, So did you, I know like Fuller has recently, they've been kind of pioneering as far as having kind of low res or distance uh, students in their PhD program but still seem really uh, intent on kind of maintaining the rigor of their program. Um, but they're unique in that way where they're offering sort of a distance option. Was that something you were doing? Like, were you working from Arizona or did you get, did you relocate to uh, Pasadena or how did that look? No, I moved to Pasadena and I lived with one of Oliver's um, uh, postdoc researchers. So um, I, I live with a guy, his name is James Turner, JT Turner. He was a, he was doing a postdoc with Oliver on that John Templeton, uh, research grant. And I lived with him. So I moved out to Pasadena for two years. I lived with him one year. And then the next year I lived, uh, in a dorm at Fuller by the campus. Um, and then after I finished my, um, 
comprehensive exams and I entered into the dissertation stage, I moved back to Arizona. So I didn't stay in Pasadena for the PhD or for the dissertation. Um, But at that point also, Oliver had moved uh, to St. Andrews. So he wasn't in, in, um, he wasn't in Pasadena. None of my other colleagues from the postdoc were in Pasadena. Um, the other PhD students, I never saw them. They, they didn't come to campus often. So I basically had nothing keeping me in California at that point. I just went back to Arizona to do my dissertation. Okay. Were you still teaching at all or were you just, just exclusively doing dissertation at that point? I was teaching online for GCU for Grand Canyon. Um, and I pretty much continued doing that until, uh, I started, so after I got my PhD, I began working full-time at a charter school here in Phoenix where I teach Latin and Greek. Um, so once I started working full-time at this charter school, I stopped teaching online for GCU, but I continued teaching online for GCU basically for from about 2017 until last year. Got it. Okay. Okay. Got it. So uh, I kind of at what point did you know what you wanted to write your dissertation on like when you i know obviously you have to do kind of a research proposal when you're applying to a phd program but how how uh how well did you know what you wanted to write on did that change over time as you started your studies in your phd program that's a good question um i knew that when i first applied for the phd program at fuller I said that I wanted to research the relationship between Christian experience and Christian doctrine, um, especially with respect to the doctrine of universal salvation, because I was doing research on that topic back then. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to understand how are Christian beliefs informed by Christian or um, experiences. Uh, so that was sort of like the vague idea that I had at the beginning. But by the time I actually sat down to, write my dissertation proposal, my thesis proposal, um, the topic had changed. And I was more interested in this issue of the phenomenology of scripture. It's kind of this, I mean, they're related. So basically, when I when I wrote my dissertation, I was answering three questions. Um, what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? Um, what is the relationship between scripture and the tradition, and the church as authorities for theology? And what would it be for God to speak to us through the text of Scripture? So what would it be sort of experientially, I suppose? Uh, so I was already, I was asking these questions, these sort of experiential phenomenological questions from the start, but I really began to focus specifically on the question of the phenomenology of Scripture and the relationship between scripture and tradition as authorities for theology around the time of my dissertation. I don't know how I got to that point. It must have been something I was reading in the meantime. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, as it goes, you, you've already read some things by the time you get into the PhD program, but you continue reading for your classes. Um, you have conversations with people, you read things on the side, and eventually the idea just sort of takes shape in your mind. So I didn't, I wasn't writing about exactly the thing that I proposed when I first signed up or when I first applied for the PhD, but there's this, nevertheless a sort of a thematic similarity. Yeah, for sure. That, I mean, yeah, that sounds lovely to read. Like I, it's, yeah, it's just, it seems like 
phenomenon, whether it's, you know, uh, phenomenological philosophy or theology, it seems like it's a subfield that's pretty uh, dominated by uh, Catholics, at least, at least, uh, yeah, at least in sort of its Christian iterations, it seems like pretty dominated by Catholics. So it's, it's exciting to see like you and others, other like younger scholars coming up who are adding sort of a Protestant voice to the discussion. So it doesn't get... <laughs> get too drowned out and just i mean it's i love the catholic stuff i'm a catholic myself but that you're right that phenomenology of religion is basically dominated by roman catholics yeah um, of course there are people who criticize um the phenomenology of religion as being really just sort of like disguised theology um right. and yeah. one of the reasons for that is because you know if catholic, roman catholic theology is very interesting because at one at the same time in Roman Catholic theology, there's an intense um, attention to experience and to the workings of sort of inner consciousness, if you want to call it that, the inner life, the interior life, mm -hmm. if you want to use those yeah. sort of terms. Uh, but at the same time, there is this, I, I think there is in Roman Catholic theology, this very sharp divide between nature and supernature, uh, between sort of creator and creature. Um, and so these two these two ways of thinking these sort of two registers kind of blend at points and it's precisely mm -hmm. at those that those points of blending that uh the critics of phenomenology of religion come in and they say well hold on at this point you're no longer doing phenomenology you're doing something else yeah. um and even you know people like robert sokolowski will say that uh the subject matters of christian theology are not subject to uh, phenomenological investigation in the strict sense because they are about things that are beyond the realm of experience but nevertheless we can talk about the relation of ideas or we can talk about you know how a person comes to believe in these things and so on so there are dimensions that are subject to phenomenological investigation but the subject matters themselves god for example the eminent case um, is beyond the sphere of phenomenology so yeah, you're right that these are like these are controverted issues, and and it is a field yeah. mostly dominated by Roman Catholics. That's right. Yeah. So what do you what do you make then of uh, folks? I mean, like you you mentioned Marion, and I know he does a lot of he brings in a lot of like apophatic theology into his phenomenology. <laughs> but I mean, I from what I understand, he's I mean he's still very much working within the realm of sort of human experience. It's, it's, so maybe it's almost more like he's coming at it with the tools of sort of the history of Christian spirituality um, more so than like, I don't know, those, those boundaries are maybe more fluid than I'm making them out to be, but more so than sort of like systematic theology. But what, what do you sort of make of, of people who do seem to be uh, uh, sort of looking at theological topics through a phenomenological lens you know i i think that um my own opinion is that a lot of people who write on theological topics through a phenomenological lens are not really doing phenomenology um they're doing theology uh but sort of in a certain accent if you want to put it that way you're in a yeah. certain dialect yeah. Yeah. um my own opinion, I mean, so I, I wrote a book about this. This was one of the topics in my dissertation, and the, my dissertation eventually became a book called Theology of the Manifest. And I'm arguing that a properly rigorous phenomenological methodology um, actually 
is inconsistent or incompatible with the kind of the hardcore dualisms that you find in Roman Catholic theology. For example, the dualism mm -hmm. between nature and grace, yeah. or nature and supernature, or creator and creature, uh, world and uh, God, and so on. In Catholic theology and in Roman Catholic theology especially, uh, you have these dualisms that phenomenology does not support. Phenomenology doesn't allow for dualisms like that. It allows for only one field of inquiry, namely uh, what appears. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas in Roman Catholic theology, and the, the Eucharist is the prime example of this, there is something beyond what appears, namely <laughs> substantial reality. And the prime example of this is the Eucharist, because what appears is bread and wine, but is really what's really there is the substance of the body and blood of Christ. So my own opinion is that um, phenomenology and um, Catholic theology in general, Roman Catholic theology in particular, are really at odds. I don't think that they are mm -hmm. reconcilable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when people like Jean-Luc Marion do theology, they've stopped doing phenomenology. They still talk in the same way, um, but they, they're really not doing phenomenology anymore. Uh, what they're doing, if anything, is a kind of phenomenology of ideas. They're showing how this idea relates to this, and sure, they're helping you to yeah. get a sort of a, a, a vision of the, the doctrinal landscape or the ideological landscape, if you want to talk about it that way. But that's not the same thing as doing a phenomenology of the thing itself, because, of course, in phenomenology, yeah. we distinguish between the thing itself and our ideas about the things. Um, so that's, that's what I think that they're really doing is a sort of a, phenomenolo a phenomenology of theological ideas. Um, that's what I think Marion is doing and Sokolowski and the rest. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, let's let I, so I, I could totally get like sucked into. I think because I'm so interested in what what you uh, researched on for your PhD, I could get like totally sucked into talking about that extensively. But I have to remember that we're here to talk about sort of your experience of your PhD program and and what it's been like to be sure. sort of a young researcher and a young academic. So. Um, I'm curious kind of what your experience was like uh, while you were doing your PhD at Fuller. What was that like for you? I think I can say confidently, Zach, that I had the best possible PhD experience because um, the professor that I was researching with um, received a research grant for $2 million. So there was a lot of cool stuff happening all the time. Uh, there were weekly seminars where they would fly in scholars to present papers and you know, there would be a question and answer session, and I would go to all of those. Um, he had his PhD students and uh, his postdocs. We would all meet like twice a week, one day to discuss a book we were all reading, the next day to like discuss somebody's paper from the group. So we would constantly be hanging out with each other. Um, I lived with one of those postdocs, and he and I got along swimmingly. We really became really good friends basically from the start. Um, our next door neighbor was another one of the postdocs, and he was actually a former professor of mine at Fuller in Arizona. He was a former uh, doctoral student of Oliver's, uh, and he was a, a, a professor at Fuller in Arizona, and then he left to do some other thing, and then he w wound up doing this postdoc with Oliver. So I got reunited with him some years later. Um, so, I mean, everything was just fantastic. We, mm -hmm. I was just every day reading, writing, talking theology, you know, living in downtown Pasadena, there are awesome restaurants nearby. Um, you know, my my uh, roommate and I, JT and I would, uh, we would watch, you know, The Office every night before going to bed. 
Nice. We would, you know, <laughs> cook, you know, do a, a reverse sear, cook steak in the in the in the house, do a reverse sear. I learned the method from him. Um, we would order pizza. We'd go to restaurants if we wanted to. You know, it, it, everything was just fantastic. It was it was the greatest time of my life. Um, so I, you know, I hear people who tell horror stories about yeah. <laughs> the PhD was so difficult and I didn't get along with my professor and he didn't care about any of my work. I didn't mm -hmm. have any of that. I can tell you, Oliver, I get along very well with Oliver. I really like working with him. He was always very enthusiastic about all of my work. So, you know, I, I, I had a fantastic experience. I made, you know, I got along really well with another professor at Fuller, also Valimati Karkainen. He wrote the foreword mm -hmm. for my book that's being yeah. published with Whippenstock. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I just had a fantastic time. I, I wish I could go back and relive those days. Um, you know, so I, I had a great time and I'm sure there are people out there who are listening to this and thinking, man, what a, what a son of a bitch. Why did I have to have it so hard? <laughs> you know, but that's just how it was for me. God was good to me and I had a great experience. I I'm thankful for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so what, yeah, one, one thing I, I w would be interested to hear about is cause you did say that Oliver Crisp, your supervisor moved to, uh, St. Andrews when you were a couple years in, right? So what did he yeah. continue sort of, uh, supervising your research or did you have to move to a different supervisor? What was that transition like for you? No, he continued supervising my work. Um, he, uh, I mean, basically by the time he moved, it was around the time that I was finishing up my coursework and preparing my dissertation or getting ready to start on the dissertation. So I would like consult with him by phone, you know, or by zoom or I don't, we didn't really use zoom back then. I forget what it would be. Maybe some sort of, you know, video calling. Sure. Um, so Skype we would keep in something. touch. Yeah. We would keep in touch every few weeks or so to sort of like check in and to let him know my progress, but I was highly motivated. I didn't need, you know, I didn't need him to check up on me and try to, <laughs> try to convince me to do my work. I wanted to mm -hmm. write the dissertation. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And I just sat down and started writing and I finished it very quickly. Um, you know, so uh, I basically it was, it was fine. I, I spoke with him about as often as I would have spoken with him had I remained in Pasadena, at least mm -hmm. about that. Maybe if I had remained in Pasadena, I would have seen him more often or on campus or something like that. But, you know, it was fine. I wanted to move back to Arizona eventually anyway. Uh, so, it worked out. It really wasn't problematic for me. I didn't have to get a new supervisor or anything. We just uh, stayed, you know, working together. Sure, sure. So you you um, brought up a few times the Templeton uh, uh, Foundation uh, grant that Oliver right. got. Uh, did that impact your own funding at all? And, and just more generally speaking, what was it like sort of trying to secure funding for your PhD? So I um, I did qualify, I think, for some sorts of scholarships when I first signed up or when I was first admitted. Um, but about halfway through my first year of my PhD, one of the postdocs withdrew from the position um, and that opened up some funds that, you know, Oliver said, hey, we can take you into the program and we can, you know, allocate this money to you. And I said, all right, sure, let's do it. So the money just kind of fell into my lap and everything was taken care of after that. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, Zach, people will probably think like, what in the hell is this guy's problem? How does everything just work out for him? <laughs> but that's how it, that's how it turned out. It, it that's just how things happened. It, it worked out yeah. to my benefit. No, yeah, that I mean that's great. I think we need more stories like that <laughs> for people. Maybe are... you hear a lot of negative stories when people talk about grad school, but I have nothing but good things to say. I only have good things to say about my experience. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it's it's great to hear. I I'm I'm glad to hear, you know, a good a good grad school story because you do hear a lot of hard ones. So um so yeah, so like you said, you you kind of briefly alluded to this earlier, but you you um teach Latin and Greek at a at a charter school. Um yeah. but what sort of while you were doing your PhD, did you know what you wanted to do afterwards? Did you have a sense of um what you hoped to do? Like what was that sort of like planning um what well what I knew were, exactly what you were what gonna I wanted want to, to do. do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew I knew exactly what I wanted to do afterwards, which was to work in, you know, at a university or at a seminary teaching uh, academic theology. Um, but I didn't get that. I applied for a job at uh, Grand Canyon University. Um, I didn't get that job. I thought I was a shoe in because I had been working there already for what from 2015 until 2021 when I finished my PhD. Yeah. I thought I was a shoe in because I'd been working there for six years, uh, but I didn't get the job. Um, I got two interviews and that was the end of it. Um, somebody told me something to the effect that the somebody doing the interviews, you know, looked over my CV and didn't like the title of one of my papers and suspected me of holding a certain position. And they just never asked me about it. That was just the end of it. So, uh -huh. you know, sometimes things turn out like that. Mm -hmm. um, I applied for another job at GCU. Then the next year, I didn't even get an interview for that. So I, to be honest, I don't think I fit in to the mold there. I think they're looking for a certain sort of person and I'm not that person. So I don't, I don't really blame them. That's just how things go. Mm -hmm. um, but as anybody knows, the theological job market is very bad. There are mm -hmm. not very many jobs. I mean, when I first got my PhD, I was applying for a lot of jobs. And for some of them, I thought I stood a pretty good chance. I mean, I was a fresh PhD. I had a good amount of publications done. You know, I had a really sort of elite team of readers on my dissertation. They passed it with distinction. So I thought I stood a really good chance, but nothing. I didn't even get, you know, I got those two interviews at GCU and that was it. I didn't even hear back from any other school. Um, same thing next year. So, I, I mean, in the meantime, I'm, you know, thankful to God. I found that this job teaching at the charter school um, and I was, you know, teaching seventh graders, you know, Latin one at this mm -hmm. charter school, this classical education mm -hmm. ch charter school. Um, and you can imagine what it's like to, I mean, I don't know if you have any experience teaching seventh graders, but I can tell you teaching Latin to seventh graders, you know, at sixth period, the last time, you know, the last hour of the day <laughs> is torture. Every day I went home and I wanted to die. I couldn't take it because these, you know, first of all, these kids were ready to be out of the classroom as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, you know, teach the material and like, listen, let's just get this done and then you guys can leave. And it's like, but they don't cooperate. So, you know, it, every day was frustrating. Every day was a pain in the butt. I would come home and just like not want to do anything. I had no energy to do anything at all. I just wanted to come home and to sit and stare at the walls because I was so, you know, exhausted from, from yeah. doing this job. And yeah you know, something came over me at one point during my first year of teaching, I think it was around September. So here I am like a month into it. 
Um, and I think to myself, you know what? I'm not a theologian unless I have a book. I need a book. I had been publishing papers and journals and things were going all right, but I said, I need a book to my name if I'm going to be a theologian. Uh, probably I had some sort of existential angst brought on by the fact that I wasn't working in theology. I was struggling <laughs> to teach yeah. Latin to middle schoolers, you know. So I started writing um, and uh, then somebody read a paper of mine that had been recently published in a journal and they offered me an opportunity to write a volume for the Cambridge Elements series. Um, and so I wrote my 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 book, Orthodoxy and Heresy, uh, in the Cambridge Elements series by you know the, the editor's invitation. Uh, then I was working on a, another book. In addition to that, that basically became Theology of the Manifest. Then I started working on a book on the Eucharist because I said, you know, there needs to be a book out there that argues for a memorialist perspective on the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. Then I started writing working on a book about theological authority in the church because I said, you know, I need to address these questions from a biblical point of view also, not just from a philosophical point of view. Sure. So it's just like one thing led to another. I, you know, I, the, the nice thing about my job is that I know the material well enough that I do not have to stress out and, you know, worry about how I'm going to prepare a lesson. I know what I'm teaching and mm -hmm. that allows me to teach very efficiently and without needing to do very much preparation. And that gives me time to work on other things and to continue my academic work. So mm -hmm. I am still writing. I'm still publishing. Um, I'm not working exactly the job that I would have loved to have at the beginning, but I'm still finding time to do other things and to continue my work in academic theology. But admittedly, you know, my situation is very atypical. I don't know if everybody who works at a charter school has exactly this experience or everybody who works outside of academia has exactly this experience. Um, one more thing I would like to say on this note is that uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona right now. My wife and I have had a son in the meantime. So I had a son born last year in June. Um, my, uh, you know, my wife and I now are buying a house. And so we're in mm -hmm. the process of buying a house here in Phoenix. Uh, I don't anticipate moving from Phoenix anytime soon. And I'm certainly not setting myself up to make that sort of thing easy. Um, so I don't know whether, uh, an academic job in theology is on the horizon for me, given my life circumstances, given the job market, given one thing after another, certainly I would like it. Um, I would love the opportunity to be able to do research or to teach theology. Uh, but I don't know if that's feasible for something into, you know, in the near future, sure. but then again, you know, a few years ago, God dropped a bunch of money in my lap when I was doing my sure. PhD. Right? <laughs> sure. so, so you never know whether something like that could happen again. Maybe the, yeah. you know, you, that there's one, if there's one lesson that I've learned, Zach, in these last few years of my life is that sometimes you have to let life surprise you. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to, you know, sort of close your horizons and to think that you have a clear conception of what the future can be like for you. And if you don't see things going very well, then you can be easily disappointed. I think it's better to be open and to mm -hmm. let life surprise you. And, you know, you never know. You, you cannot say ahead of time what is or isn't going to happen because yeah. we are not in control of those things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one thing I'm, I would love to hear about is uh, as someone who probably does not have any like institutional funding for your own research, for going to conferences and that sort of thing. Um, 
What's it been like? Obviously, you said you started writing books and you've published an impressive amount already since finishing your PhD. But what's it sort of been like trying to stay active in the academy? I mean, whether that's whether that's continuing to sort of uh, write and research, but also um, just kind of uh, continuing to like uh, develop your academic network and um, participate in conferences and that sort of thing. You know, I'm I'm really really not very good at any of that, um, and I don't think I set myself up well um, at the beginning of my PhD. Uh, I scheduled my comprehensive exams for the weekend of SBL AAR. Oh wow! Uh, when okay. it was in yeah. when it was in uh, San Diego, so the one year it was somewhere nearby me, and I could have gone easily. <laughs> I, without thinking, I scheduled my comprehensive exams for that week, so I simply Sorry. could not make it. Um, you know, ever since I finished my PhD, I don't work in academia, so I don't have. There's nobody paying. <laughs> For my conferences, yeah. right? If I go to a conference, yeah. I have to, I have to pay for it myself. What's more, basically, you know, already while I was writing my dissertation in 2020, there was COVID, so there were no conferences for very many years. Um, I participated in an online conference, I think one year, um, but it's not the same thing, and you certainly don't get to network or make new friends or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, I was very happy to have the opportunity a couple of weeks ago in uh, during spring break to go to the Los Angeles Theology Conference at La Mirada at Biola. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to present a paper there. I was very excited about that. I got to see Oliver and a couple of my friends from the PhD program uh, back at Fuller. Um, and it just felt awesome to be back at a conference and to be interacting with people and talking theology and going to papers and reading a paper and so on. That's a lot of fun. That's really one of the best things about the academic life. Um, and I want to make a habit of it. I want to try to find a way of going to at least one a year, if I can, mm-hmm. presenting a paper, meeting with people. Um, but it's something that I have to fund myself. And, you know, happily for me, my wife is good about um, saving money and being uh, mindful of finances. I am really terrible at that stuff. So <laughs> sure. um, I, I'm glad to have her you know, she helped me to sort of set up a saving plan for uh, putting money aside to have to go to that conference. So I want to start doing that and maybe go to a conference a year if I can. Um, I could probably interest her in coming to the conferences too, if they're in interesting cities, (laughs) we can sort of make a vacation weekend out of it, you know. Absolutely. Um, But basically I have to do all the stuff myself. I've lately started to try to do sort of internet networking. So I maybe interact with people online um, I got a Twitter account because I noticed a lot of, a lot more people are, are on Twitter than on Facebook where mm-hmm. I was previously. So I interact yeah. with people on Twitter. I've also found that interacting with people on Twitter can be like highly toxic and, yeah. <laughs> and unhealthy because <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. there are people out there that are just totally shameless. I mean, I would never talk to a person the way that some people talk to me online. And yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know what gives <laughs> them the, the, the audacity to do it, but that's, that's how it is. So you, you have to get used to the fact that there are going to be some knuckleheads on there too, but it's not so bad. Um, and one other thing I suppose I'm trying to do for myself to kind of, you know, network is precisely publish these books. You know, I mean, I've, I've written a lot in the last couple of years while I've been sort of post PhD um, and I'm publishing these books and I'm 
you know, trying to make a splash to some extent by kind of, you know, flooding the market with the the mm. mind of Stephen Nemesh <laughs> and getting people to, sure. to, you know, here's what I think about Trinity. Here's what I think about Eucharist. Here's what I think about tradition. Here's, you know, so hopefully I will attract some attention that way. I, I mean, I, in all seriousness, I think that I'm, I'm offering arguments uh, and ideas that are worth considering and worth interacting with. And I, I hope that other people will feel the same way and we can get a conversation started. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, moving kind of in the uh, same direction, um, could you speak a little bit? Cause you, you're kind of already, you're already speaking to this a bit, but could you speak a little bit more about uh, maybe some of the, the pros and the cons or the difficulties and um, sort of the positives of of working outside the academy while still trying to kind of do your own academic work. Well, one positive of working outside of the academy, it, it I mean, it, it really depends on the nature of your job. Um, if you find a job that makes you enough money and gives you free time, uh, then you can research and write and do whatever you want, and you don't have any of the, you know, sort of administrative burdens um, that go into working at a seminary or working at a university. Um, my job that I do now teaching at this charter school is very, very, very undemanding of me. Like I, it, it is not a demanding job at all. Um, I know the material well enough. I manage to organize my classroom and my assignments and my grading in such a way that it is not a burden on me to do any of that stuff. I get it done quickly and efficiently. And that gives me time to do what I want, um, you know, and to write and to research. Um, so, and I think to myself, like, okay, if I were to work this job for the next 30 years, instead of ever working at a, you know, a university or, a, or something like that, would I like that? Is that, is that something that's good? Well, it, it really isn't so bad because a lot of people who are working jobs in academia are nevertheless teaching like four or five classes a semester and are constantly yeah. grading and having to go to meetings and doing this and doing that. And they have all these professional, um, you know, responsibilities that they have to meet. And I mm -hmm. asked some of my friends, what are you guys researching? And they're like, I don't have any time to research because I'm yeah. teaching all the time. <laughs> you know, so, and even then when they say they're teaching all the time, they'll still complain about the fact that their students are terrible and they don't seem interested and blah, blah, blah. So you can work in academia and it's like you're a member of the club, but you know, they don't give you the seat of honor necessarily. They, sure. you, know, you, you can be in the club and still be in like the, you know, a shitty corner of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, whereas yeah. I'm, I'm not in the club. If you look at my job title, because I don't work at a university or a seminary, right. but I have more time than any of my friends, as far as I know, to research and to write and to produce and it works out. So I think it depends on your circumstances. I think I'm just incredibly lucky. God is you know, I think God knew that I'm weak and that I wouldn't be able to handle it if I didn't have the time to do this. So he gave me this job, I suppose, out of his pity. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm happy with my situation. I would really love to be a part of a university and to have, you know, theologian as my title, but I don't have that. Um, but I may not be a professional theologian in the sense that I'm not paid to do theology by a school. Uh, but the work, the job that I have now, nevertheless, allows me to be a theologian on my own time, um, mm -hmm. and so it it's still fulfilling. You know, I don't I don't have the the I suppose the point of personal pride of working at some prestigious university or school, but I still have the <laughs> sure. chance to do what I love. Yeah, 
What's it been like for you with a um, with a young kid at home trying to also uh, do your own research and writing? Congratulations, by the way, that's awesome. But yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, for sure. What's what's it been like? Because I know I have a almost three year old now, and that's been a bit of a whirlwind adjusting to uh, my my personal time being cut to you know <laughs> far less yeah. than it was before. So what's it been like? trying to read and write uh, with the responsibilities of a little one? Well, it's not easy. There's no time, Um, especially like when I'm not at work, uh, I get home and I have to watch him, right? And so I don't really have a lot of time to read or read. You you have to watch the baby. So I really, the majority of my free research and so on, I did um, leading up to his birth. I said, I want to finish these books before my son is born. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because I know I'm not going to have the same sort of time to do them afterwards. Sure. Uh, so I did a whole lot of work before my son was born, born uh, to to try to redeem the time and to make the most of it. Ever since he's been born, it's more difficult, but it's not impossible, right? You again, I'm I'm trying to find ways to make my situation efficient. So if I have to sort of let him, you know, wander around and play and just sort of like create a create a sort of a uh, Oh, man, what would you even call it? Like a pen or something where you, you know, you keep oh, all your farm sure, animals, sure. you know, where you yeah, round up yeah, the yeah, sheep yeah. and you put them all. <laughs> if I have to create a setup like that for him in the living room, you know, he can just crawl around and do whatever he wants, but he just can't leave the room and I can all sit right. on the couch and read and sort of keep an eye on him. It works. Um, my son, when he was first born for the first two or so months of his life, he was very colicky and mm, yeah. basically would, you know, scream himself to sleep every night for like at least an hour. Um, And then of course he'd be up an hour and a half or two hours later to eat. And he, you know, wherever you would put him, he wouldn't just like sit there. He would get like, he would start crying after 10 minutes, no matter what position you put him in. He didn't like to be held. He didn't like, he was just very difficult in the beginning. And so obviously I didn't get any work done then, but you know, now he's a lot easier. He's much easier to take care of. So um, you know, this opens up time for me also to do research or to write or to correct my writings and, and so on. Sure. Yeah. Do you find that you're leaning much more on sort of late, late nights or early mornings than you were before? Uh, certainly early mornings were both late nights and early mornings were where I got a lot of work done. Um, yeah. And, you know, that was an anno- late nights were an annoyance to my wife because she wanted to hang out. And I was like, no, I'm. <laughs> You know, I'm having one of my obsessive moments right now. I have to write because I can't focus on anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I, 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 maybe you're like that too. I get in, sometimes it just happens that like I have an idea or something is in my head and I can't do anything else except write. I have to, whatever I'm doing, I have to finish everything else and get to writing and get it out of my, yes. get it out of my mind. Yeah. Um, so late nights, early mornings. Um, of course it's easy to have early mornings when you're taking care of a baby because he provides, he makes you get up. Yeah. Uh, He'll, he'll, he'll be up early and you, you know, you can't just leave him up while you're sleeping. So, um, my son helped me out in that respect, I suppose. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Okay. So for those who are, for those of our listeners who are maybe working on a master's or have finished a master's and are thinking about applying to some kind of PhD program, what, what advice would you give to them? I really don't know uh, what to say because I think my own experience was extremely atypical. 
I've told you basically only positive things about sure. it. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and um, I hadn't. <clears throat> excuse me. If I hadn't <clears throat> got into a certain failed relationship, I would have had the perfect PhD experience. <laughs> the only negative thing about my time doing my PhD was something that had nothing to do with my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it's hard for me to come up with advice. I I can say this much. I knew that I had no other option. I had to do this PhD. Nothing else would have worked for me. So, <clears throat> so it seems to me that if you are considering doing a PhD, the one thing, the one case in which I would tell you without a doubt that you have to do it is if you feel that you could not wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night without thinking about it. You have to be, you have mm-hmm. to know it. It has to not even be a question for you that this is what you should do. Um, and then I might recommend that you do it in that case, if you have that kind of drive and internal conviction, but if you're just thinking about it, if you're just sort of up in the air, I can't give you any sort of advice because the job market is horrible. Yeah. A yeah. lot of Christian schools are, you know, if you want to do like a, a PhD in theology at a Christian school, a lot of these schools are going under, um, mm-hmm. certainly the more conservative and evangelical ones. I don't know so much about the more liberal schools. You might try that. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, the the situation is just very ugly. There are already so many PhDs out there on the market. Um, I thought I stood a pretty good chance of getting at least one interview for a job somewhere when I applied, mm-hmm. but I didn't hear back from any school. Um, you know, the only school I heard back from was a school that I'd already been working at for uh, five or six years. Um, and that was the first time around that I applied for them. The second time around, I didn't hear back from them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, you know, if this rumor is to be believed, uh, one of the one of the factors determining whether I would or would not get that job is how one of the interviewing persons felt about a title of a paper in my CV. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there are so many factors here that are motivating, <clears throat> that would motivate normal, rational person against doing a PhD in theology. Right. Right. But I can't really offer good advice. <clears throat> My, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you might think to say, like, you should probably your default position should be not to do it. But if you were like me and you just felt a firm conviction, I have to do this. There's nothing else for me to do. Everything else is going to be utterly dissatisfying for me. If you have that kind of firm conviction and inner drive, then you should do it. And trust in God to provide for you. Uh, but if you don't have it, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's do one more question and then I'll let you go. I know it's, late, it's getting a little bit late for both of us, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your new book that you just published with us, which you've mentioned in brief here, um, which is called Theological Authority in the Church reconsidering traditionalism and hierarchy. So could you tell um, me and for our listeners just a little bit uh, about what you're sort of up to in that book? Sure. Um, For a very long time in my life, I was seriously considering conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. And especially around the time I began my PhD at at, um, 
uh, Fuller, I began attending RCIA at a church mm. in Temple City in California. Uh, but eventually I decided that this is not for me. I was this, I, I, I didn't feel right about it. Um, and then as I began working on my dissertation, uh, I began to see more clearly the discrepancies between my own uh, phenomenological method of inquiry and what I think are certain fundamental ideas in Roman Catholic theological method. Mm. Um, and basically what I'm doing in that book is I'm trying to address the question of theological authority in the church and responding to uh, uh, common Roman Catholic arguments, for example, about Matthew 16, thou art Peter, and so on, um, responding to those arguments through an interpretation of the New Testament. Uh, so what I'm suggesting in that book is that if you pay close attention to Jesus's teachings, especially in the, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and especially in his polemics with the Pharisees about the nature of tradition, about um, you know, uh, other issues. Um, it seems to me that Jesus's notion of theological authority in his community and the church is not what Roman Catholicism says. Um, so what I argue in that book is that nobody in the church, apart from Christ, uh, I should put it this way, nobody in the church has any further theological authority mm -hmm. than that of fallibly, derivatively, and in principle, reversibly, bearing witness to the teachings of Jesus and the works of God in him. Uh, so the only unconditional authority for theology is, we can say, our God in Christ. Um, all other authorities are conditional. Uh, their job is to bear witness to what Christ has taught and to what God has done in him, mm -hmm. uh, but they do so fallibly, which means it can be corrected. Now, obviously, in Roman Catholic theology, the vast majority of the theology that takes place on earth is fallible, but there are moments of infallibility. Uh, for example, uh, when an ecumenical get, uh, council gathers to teach, you know, some to define some matter of the faith, mm -hmm. uh, when the Bishop of Rome uh, speaks in his capacity as the teacher of the church uh, and solemnly defines some matter of faith or morals. Or even when all the bishops in the church who are in communion with one another and with the Bishop of Rome, uh, you know, scattered throughout the world, happen to agree on some point as being essential to the faith. So mm -hmm. there are certain moments of infallibility. Even though the vast majority of theology that takes place in history is fallible, there are for Roman Catholics uh, moments of infallibility. And the infallible agents in those cases are not, strictly speaking, just God or Christ, but also authorities in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so what I say in the book is that these persons have a strictly derivative but functionally original authority. So their authority is strictly derivative or in, uh, it, their authority is strictly derivative because the only reason why the Bishop of Rome is authoritative is because God has granted him that authority. Mm. So the Bishop of Rome has derivative authority, but on mo there are moments when he speaks with a functionally original authority. So what I mean by that is that Sometimes what the Bishop of Rome says has to be received as though God himself had said it, uh, because God is protecting him to speak infallibly in those circumstances. Um, so what I'm arguing in this book is that given Christ's polemics against the Pharisees in the New Testament, uh, he does not accept this notion of a strictly derivative but functionally original authority in the church. Uh, mm. There is only the original authority of God, 
and of Christ. They're these sort of unconditional authorities. And then everybody else is a fallible, strictly derivative authority. They can be corrected and so on. Um, and so what, I, what I'm doing in that book is offering a response to these Roman Catholic arguments, but mm -hmm. also noting the consequences because Roman Catholics are not my only targets here. Um, there is sort of also an implicit target placed on Protestants who, although they're not Roman Catholic, they still want to be Catholic. Um, so my, my real target is the Catholic tradition as a whole, because the Catholic mm -hmm. tradition really accepted this notion of, uh, strictly derivative, but functionally original authorities. Uh, so this is one of the ways in which I'm arguing that theology, Protestant theology has to be pushed in this post-Catholic direction. One of the, mm -hmm. one of the doors that opens up a post-Catholic Protestant theology is precisely the rejection of any unconditional or, you know, um, uh, unconditional authority in the church apart from Christ and God. Uh, everybody else is questionable. Everybody else can be called into question. Everybody else can be, you know, um, uh, contradicted in principle. So this means that theology is in flux. It's moving. Uh, there's no, we don't have a final answer yet. Uh, the final answer only comes at the eschaton, uh, as Wolfhard Pannenberg mm -hmm. says. Until then, we're talking about these things and we're trying to figure them out and we have to be willing to be corrected. Uh, it's like I was saying earlier, right? We've, we can be decisive uh, or we can be open to correction, but it's hard to say to have both of those things. Yeah. Um, there's nothing yeah. wrong with having theological opinions, but they have to be disputable. You have to be willing to discuss them. Uh, sure. It's, the, it's, yeah. it's when you're no longer willing to discuss, when something is simply beyond the bounds of discussion, that's when you know something has sort of gone wrong in this process, I think. Mm. But anyway, that's, yeah. that's, where, that's what I'm writing about in that book. And I'm intending the book to provide sort of a, a clearly stated arguments against common Roman Catholic interpretations of passages like uh, Thou art Peter in Matthew 16 yeah. Yeah, yeah. or the tradition of the elders uh, in Matthew 15, the, the polemic against the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and so on. Yeah. Man, yeah, that just sounds so um, interesting and sounds like it's just a very thoroughly thought through project. I, yeah, I'll be excited to take a look at it. Um, yeah, I do. I just I want to say thank you for taking some time. I know it's later in the evening for both of us. So um, appreciate you taking some time to chat and um, very glad to um, talk with you for the last hour or so. So thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you.